Good morning. It's good to see you on this Palm Sunday. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here. You should know that we've been making our way through a series on Genesis 1 through 3 these last couple months. And this morning, that means we are landing at the beginning of chapter 3, Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Actually, I don't know if we could have picked a better text to set us up for Easter this coming week. Uh, the fall, when sin enters the world, certainly explains why Jesus had to come and why him going to the cross and being raised from the dead is so significant. So I think this will set us up perfectly for where we're headed next Sunday, on Easter Sunday. But for now, let's pray, and then we'll get to Genesis 3. Uh, God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word today. Every Sunday when we gather together, it is a joy, and it is a privilege for us to be able to open your word. Lord, we pray that we would have ears to hear it this morning. We know, and as this passage is going to remind us, there is an active spiritual warfare that takes place every time we open your word. And so we just pray that your spirit would be at work this morning, that you would be able to cut through whatever distractions may be in our own hearts, or even whatever distractions may be in this room. God, we just ask that you would work in a powerful way this morning, that your spirit would be heavy upon us. But we pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would have eyes to see. God, we pray that you would help us to know and love your word, and that we would see it as the precious treasure that it is. So God, please now be with us as we turn our attention to your word. We pray that you would speak. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. So if you're a Husker football fan, and I think some of you might be, it's almost certain that October 9th, 2011 is a day that's etched in your memory, or at least what happened on that day is etched in your memory. Because on that day, the Huskers completed the largest comeback in school history against the big bad bully of the Big Ten, the Ohio State Buckeyes. Now, as you may remember, if you're a Husker fan, you're old enough, the Buckeyes jumped out to an early lead in that game. And by the beginning stages of the third quarter, they were up 27-7. to At that point, the rain was falling and fans, at least some of them, started to head for the exits. And then the unthinkable happened. The Huskers reeled off 28 unanswered points and ended up winning the game 35-27. to the quarterback, Taylor Martinez, was a key figure in that game. He threw for two touchdowns, ran for another. Good old Rex Burkhead played his part, too, with 119 yards and 59 yards receiving. But in reading about the game this week, and by the way, this is how much I love you guys. I could have given you a cycling illustration, but I dove deep into the world of Husker football this week. In reading about the game this week, it would seem that most Husker fans would argue the turning point of the game didn't actually occur on the offensive side of the ball, but the defensive side. Having just punted the ball and down 27-7, the Huskers were in serious trouble being run out of the stadium until linebacker Levante David stripped the ball from Buckeye quarterback Braxton Miller. Shortly thereafter, Martinez would run in for a touchdown, and from that point on, the Huskers were a different team. Looking back, Martinez and Burkhead may have been the stars of the game, at least from some people's perspective, but the turning point in that game, most Husker fans would say, was that Levante David forced fumble. That play changed everything. That's the way it usually works in sports, isn't it? When you look back on a game, there's often one moment you can point to and say, that changed the dynamic of the entire contest. Now, sometimes that moment changes things for the better for your team. Sometimes it changes things for the worse. But either way, the point is, from that point on, things are not the same. But actually, you don't have to be a sports fan to get that, do you? I think most of us could identify turning points in our life that radically alter the direction of where we're headed. Again, sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Maybe it was a phone call that flipped your life upside down, or a visit from the doctor that changed the path forward, or an injury that you never really recovered from, or a decision to move or take a job that forever altered your trajectory. I know I have moments like that in my life. The day I met my wife, the day Dawson had his first season, the day Mark Walters shared the good news of Christ with me. All of those were massive turning points in my life. 
And I think all of us have points like that, some bigger than others, but nonetheless turning points throughout our life. But what I'm going to argue this morning is the event we're about to study in Genesis 3 is not just a turning point in the way that we think about turning points in a game or the way we think about turning points in our life. I'm going to argue the event we're about to study is one of the biggest turning points in all of human history. Because what happens here in Genesis 3 is not just a turning point that affects a game or affects a family or a community or even a generation or a nation. It's a turning point that has affected every last person on the face of the planet since. So while there may be some turning points that affect things like games, Levante David's forced fumble, or some turning points that affect our lives, like a bad diagnosis from the doctor, there are some turning points that affect all of human history and even echo into eternity. Those turning points are rare, but we're about to study one of them in Genesis 3 because everything changes from this point forward. Sin enters the world, and since then, nothing has been the same. What I'm going to propose this morning is that understanding what happened in Genesis 3 is hugely important, not just for helping us understand what happened in the past, but also helping us to understand how we should live going forward. Because not only does understanding what happened in Genesis 3 help us understand why the world is so messed up, but I think it also helps us to realize the tactics of an enemy who is still at work today. And I'm convinced that understanding those tactics of the enemy can actually help to keep us from plunging into our own personal darkness. So that said, let's turn our attention then to one of the great turning points in all of human history, and let's pray that God would use this turning point that we read about in our passage today to open our eyes so that we can be on guard against the tactics of an ancient enemy. So that said, let's stand here. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Stand is just a simple way we can remind ourselves that this is God's word, and as such, it is due our attention. So Genesis 3, 1 to 7, words are on the screen. You can listen. As I read, or you can look along in your own Bibles, but the Word of God says this, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So at the end of our passage the last week, at the end of chapter 2, everything seemed to be going great. As we concluded the passage last week in chapter 2, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. There's no need for them to hide. There's no need for them to cover anything up. There's nothing wrong to be embarrassed about, because creation was very good. The garden was a place of peace and safety. But all of that changes in chapter 3. By verse 7, Adam and Eve are now aware of their nakedness and trying to cover up. This is the exact opposite of what we saw in chapter 2, verse 25. By verse 8, which we'll get to next week, they are hiding from God in shame. The picture in chapter 2 is a picture of peaceful goodness. The picture here in chapter 3 is a picture of a turbulent storm. The beautiful picture of chapter 2 has been shattered, and in its wake there's devastation. So the question is, what happened here? What changed everything? How did everything go from being so good to being so messed up? What was the turning point? Well, the answer to that question is found in verses 1 to 6. In verse 1, we're introduced to a new character in the story, 
a serpent. And from the beginning, we're meant to be a little bit suspicious of his motives. As we're told in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, the word crafty doesn't necessarily have to be a negative word. In fact, sometimes in the Bible, it's used positively. But it can be a negative word. It can imply a dark shrewdness, a cunningness that's meant to deceive. And given the way the story unfolds, the negative connotation almost certainly seems to be hinted at here in verse 1. Now, having said that, we have to admit, there's still a lot of mystery surrounding this serpent character. We don't know where he came from. We don't know how he got to be so crafty. We don't even know how he can talk. And we certainly don't know why he's so intent on creating havoc. All we know is that he's crafty, which is what we're told in verse 1. And by the end of the verse or end of the passage, we know that he is trying to create havoc. Now, the New Testament actually gives us some insight as to what's happening here. The book of Revelation identifies the serpent as Satan. So in some ways, Satan, that is the devil, is speaking through this serpent. Now, admittedly, that still leaves us with a host of questions. Where did Satan, the great adversary, come from? If God's creation was very good, and if God is the one who created the serpent, and Satan too, then why does the serpent or Satan turn against God? The truth is, we don't really know the answer to those questions. But in this passage, those questions are not the concern. The author, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is not trying to answer the question of where did the serpent come from, or who is the serpent. Instead, the concern in Genesis 3 is simply with what the serpent says and does. And so rather than speculate this morning on the origins of the serpent, I think it's best for us to simply follow the lead of the text and focus on what the serpent says. And here's what's really fascinating about the serpent's dialogue in this passage. The serpent never tells Eve, or for that matter Adam, to eat of the forbidden fruit. Instead, he raises questions. He twists words. He sows seeds of doubt. Now, the end result of his craftiness is that both Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, and in so doing, they plunge the world into darkness and despair. And hear me, that sin and darkness and despair is still felt today. It's not hyperbole to say that this is the most catastrophic turning point in all of human history. All of the pain and difficulty and suffering that we see in the world today can be traced back to this very moment. When the serpent was able to convince Adam and Eve to disobey God and eat of the forbidden fruit, and from that point forward, sin entered the world. And what's crazy about all that is that he didn't even have to tell them to do it. He was able to convince them in a much more crafty way. And actually, that's what I want to focus on this morning. In the weeks to come, we'll talk more about the devastation that comes as a result of what happens here in Genesis 3. But today, I want us to focus on the tactics of the serpent. Because here's the thing, while the events of Genesis 3 were a unique turning point in all of human history, the one that is driving the chaos in Genesis 3, the serpent, Satan, he is still at work today. I'm convinced he's still working in the same ways today. To paraphrase Pastor Alistair Begg, Satan still has the same gun that he used in Genesis 3, and he's still using the same bullets. And as Paul alludes to in 2 Corinthians 2, we do not want to be ignorant of his designs because we do not want to be outwitted by his schemes. And so to that end, here's my plan for the rest of our time together this morning. I want to walk through our passage today. I want to point out tactics that Satan uses to tempt us and lead us astray, three of them specifically. And then I want us to think at the very end about how we might counteract those tactics. But first, let's start by thinking about the tactics that Satan uses in Genesis 3 so that we will not be outwitted by his schemes. Now again, the crazy thing is, he never tells Adam or Eve to eat of the fruit. He never tells them directly to sin. He just convinces them by using underhanded and cunning tactics. 
I think it's important that we see those tactics so that we can be on guard ourselves. All right, so again, three tactics this morning. The first tactic is simply this. Satan undermines the reliability of God's word. All right, so again, what we're saying is that Satan is able to convince them to eat of the fruit without actually telling them to eat the fruit. How does he do this? First, he undermines the reliability of God's word, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, Satan's approach to Eve here is very subtle. And at some level, at first glance, it almost seems innocent. After all, is there anything wrong with wondering, what did God actually say? Doesn't that seem like a legitimate question? But the way this serpent phrases the question clues us in that his intent here is not so innocent. In fact, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to have Kate throw verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2 on the screen here. Because I think it's important that you see what God actually says in Genesis 2 verses 16 and 17. And then we're going to compare back to what the serpent says in chapter 3, verse 1. All right, so back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So in verse 16, there's a positive statement. The statement starts positively. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now, he does give the prohibition in verse 17 regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the command starts positively in verse 16 with God telling Adam, he may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But notice in verse 1 of chapter 3 how Satan takes that positive command and slightly twists it to make it negative. As the serpent puts it in verse 1, did God actually say you shall not, that's the key word, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Notice the slight shift there. If the serpent was being earnest, the question would have been, did God actually say that you may surely eat of any tree in the garden? But he's not earnest. So the question he asks, he turns a positive into a negative. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And asking the way he does, the serpent seems to be calling into question God's generosity. He's trying to paint God as restrictive and keeping us from things. Did God say you can't have access to any of these trees? He's painting God in a negative light. But more than just calling into question God's character, which is another one of his tactics that we'll see here again shortly, he's calling into question the reliability of God's word. Notice what he says. Did God actually say this? Did God actually say this? The question is meant to undermine the authority of God's word. And make no mistake about it, Satan is still utilizing the same tactic today. I'm convinced that the greatest crisis in our church today, and I don't just mean our church, I mean the church as a whole, the greatest crisis in the church today is not that we're bending on our morality, although many churches are bending on their morality, and it is a crisis. The crisis that underlies that crisis is that many in the church today no longer believe in the authority of God's word. And it's because they don't believe, it's because they don't believe in the authority of God's word that they are bending on their morality. Tony and I have some friends from our college ministry days that we still keep in contact with through social media. And it's obvious that some of these friends have completely adopted the mindset of the world on issues like abortion and marriage and gender and sexuality. And yet some of them are still claiming to follow Christ. And so my question is, how does that go together? How can a person say they're following Christ and then adopt views that are completely contrary to what God's word says? It's because Satan still has the same bullet in his gun. He's still asking the same question, did God really say this? 
Listen, these friends of ours who claim to follow Christ and yet openly live unbiblical lifestyles have bought into Satan's lie that the word of God cannot be trusted, that it is not reliable, that we don't even know exactly what he said. Satan has convinced them the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. Oh, that was just something meant for their culture. Or it may look like it says that, but you're interpreting it wrongly. Now listen, I'll be the first to admit that interpreting the Bible has challenges. And sometimes it's hard to figure out, okay, what if this is specific to the historical context and what if this applies to us today? But having acknowledged that most of the time, our modern capitulation on morality has nothing to do with interpretation issues and everything to do with trusting the authority of God's word. The Bible's teaching on things like marriage and gender and sexuality and abortion is straightforward. And the reason why some are rejecting it is not because of interpretation issues, but because deep down they don't really believe the word of God is reliable. And they wonder, did God actually really say this? And in that, they've fallen prey to Satan's age-old tactic. His first question, did God really say this? The serpent is too clever to come out and say, eat of the forbidden fruit, who cares what God says? Now, the serpent doesn't do that. Instead, he just nudges Adam and Eve in the direction of disobedience by simply asking the question, did God really say that? This is one of the tactics that he's using in this passage. It's also one of the tactics he's still using today. But there's another tactic we see here in Genesis 3, and that's this, tactic number two. Satan undermines the trustworthiness of God. Now, we're not just talking about God's word. We're talking about God's character. Verses 2 through 4, he undermines the trustworthiness of God. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So Satan starts in verse 1 by trying to undermine the reliability of God's word. Did God really say this? But in verse 4, he shifts his tactics. Instead of questioning what did God actually say, in verse 4, he's questioning whether God himself can actually be trusted. Or perhaps to put it more bluntly, the serpent is calling God a liar. In verses 2 and 3, the, wo- the woman recites back what God had told Adam in chapter 2. Now she actually misses a few things and adds some things also. And that's an important part of the story that we'll return to here shortly. But for our current purposes, it's worth pointing out at the end of verse 3, the woman tells the serpent of God's warning about death as a consequence for rebellion. And it's true that God did give that warning back in chapter 2, verse 17. But in verse 4, Satan just comes out and flatly contradicts the claim. So if Satan's tactic in verse 1 was to subtly undermine the word of God, and t- his tactic in verse 4 is much more straightforward. He calls into question God's character. In essence, he calls God a liar. As the serpent bluntly puts it in verse 4, you will not surely die. Or in other words, God was wrong. Now, as is often the case, there is a half-truth here in Satan's lie. It's true that Adam and Eve did not die on the day that they ate of the fruit. In fact, Adam lived to be 900-some years old. But that's not actually the death that God was talking about back in chapter 2. As the context of the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible will make clear, in chapter 2, God was talking about a spiritual death. The result of eating the forbidden fruit was to be cut off immediately from relationship with God, to be cast out of the garden, to be away from his presence, to die spiritually. Now, physical death would come later, but the immediate death that God was referring to back in chapter 2 was a spiritual death. The serpent knows this, but he lives in half-truths. He longs to undermine the trustworthiness of the Creator, and so he emphasizes that half-truth to try to paint God in a negative light. He calls God a liar. 
He says, you won't really pay for your sins. You'll be fine. You can't trust what God said. This is his tactic to undermine the trustworthiness of God's character, to, under, un, to undermine the trustworthiness of God's promises. And again, it's worth pointing out, he is still shooting the same bullet today. And I would argue he's still shooting it at the same target. Even today, he's trying to convince us there's no penalty for sin. When I was in college, I did quite a bit of street evangelism. And sometimes it would literally be on the streets, but oftentimes in the dorms or other places on campus. And whenever the topic of God's justice would come up, it was always interesting to me how many people denied that there was such a thing as hell. Or they would try to downplay it. They would say something like, well, if I go to hell, all my friends will be there. It'll be a big party. I think most people have convinced themselves in our culture that God really isn't going to punish sin. And sadly, I think this mentality has even spilled into the church. Just this week, Seth and I were talking about how rarely hell is talked about in most churches. Put it this way, there are a lot of churches that do, a top, that do topical preaching series. But when was the last time you heard of a church doing a topical series on hell? Or maybe to frame it in a way that hits a little bit closer to home for us. If we really believe that trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ was the difference between eternity with God or eternity cut off from God, if we really believe that apart from knowing Christ, our loved ones will face the eternal wrath of God, then how could we not be more urgent in sharing Christ with other people? The fact is, collectively, it seems that we've bought into the same lie that the serpent was whispering in the garden. God won't really punish sin. You will not surely die. Satan undermines the trustworthiness of God, and he convinces us God won't really punish sin. Now, on the other side of the coin, he undermines God's trustworthiness by convincing us that heaven won't be that great either. When Paul says it would be better by far to die and be with Christ, there's part of us that has a hard time believing that. And the reason why we have a hard time believing it is because, again, the serpent is whispering the same thing into our ears. You can't trust God. Heaven won't be that good. Your best life is now. But that too is a lie. One of Satan's great tactics then is to convince us that not only is God's word unreliable, but God himself is unreliable. But there's a third tactic here, and that's this, and this too is speaking to God's character. Satan undermines the goodness of God. He undermines the goodness of God. Verse 5, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now again, the serpent is too coy. He doesn't come out and say, oh, God's not good. He's not really for you, Adam and Eve. He doesn't come out and say that, but he certainly implies those things in his comments in verse 5. As the serpent cleverly puts it, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In that comment, the serpent is slyly suggesting that God is withholding something good from Adam and Eve, and by listening to him, the serpent, they can obtain that good thing. Now, of course, again, it's a lie. Now, there is an element of truth in Satan's approach, which isn't surprising given that he lives in half-truths. He's right that Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, but not in the way that he promised. As verse 7 tells us, when their eyes were open, it's not that they became like God. Instead, they just realized they were naked. As is always the case, Satan over-promises and under-delivers. He lures us in by convincing us his way is better. In this case, he's luring them, luring them in by saying, your eyes will be open, you'll be happier. What he's implying in that is that God doesn't want what's best for them. He's trying to withhold pleasure. But again, it's a lie. A lie, though, that's effective and a lie that he still uses today. 
One of the ways that Satan tries to tempt us to sin now is by getting us to believe that God's not really for us. His commands are not good. His design is not for our benefit. His plan is not to our favor. Satan wants us to believe that God is withholding from us because God doesn't really love us and he's not really good. A while back, we were visiting some friends of ours in another state. One night, we went out to a pizza place with our family, and right next to the pizza place was an ice cream store. And apparently, our friends had been to this particular ice cream store before because one of their kids started talking about a particular ice cream that he had had at that store, bubblegum ice cream to be precise. And once he started talking about this bubblegum ice cream, I'm just telling you, he could not get it out of his head. For the next hour, and I'm not using hyperbole here, I I think it was the next hour, he talked about bubblegum ice cream nonstop. Eventually got to the point where he was just begging his parents, can we please get this ice cream? It would make me so happy. This would be the greatest thing ever. I love this ice cream. On and on he went to the point that things started to get awkward, even for our kids. They're like, what is going on here? Now, to our friend's credit, they didn't give in his parents, and eventually they pulled him aside and had a frank conversation after that things turned around. But up until that point, it was just painful to watch. And it was painful in part because I knew his parents, and I knew they wanted to bless their child and do what was best for him. In fact, we had plans later that week to go to a really fun ice cream place, one that was even better than this one. And that night we were getting pizza and doing other fun things. But in that moment, their son just could not see it. He could not see that his parents didn't want to spoil him, that they cared about his character. That's why they weren't giving him the ice cream. He couldn't see that they had other plans to bless him. All he could see in that moment is he wanted the bubblegum ice cream and he couldn't have it. And in that moment, based on his tone and his persistence, I have no doubt there was, a, there was a part of him that night that wondered, are my parents really for me? Are my parents really good? But what he didn't understand in that moment is that his parents loved him too much to give him that bubblegum ice cream. Now in the garden, it wasn't bubblegum ice cream. Parenthetically here, if there was ice cream in the garden, it wouldn't be bubblegum. Give me a break. Bubblegum ice cream is the worst. It would be chocolate chip cookie dough or something like that. Parentheses over. In the, in the tree, or excuse me, in the garden though, it wasn't bubblegum ice cream. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent was able to convince Adam and Eve that God was withholding this tree because he wasn't really good. He didn't really want what was best for them. And what's more, as the serpent implies in verse 5, they would actually be better off taking things into their own hands. The serpent is indirectly able to convince Adam and Eve they need to become like God because they would do a better job ruling than God is doing. And in verse 6, that's actually what they do. They take on the role of God. Listen carefully to the language of verse 6. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, what's interesting is whereas before in chapter 1, God is the one declaring what's good. In verse 6, it's Eve, and by proxy, Adam, now declaring what they think to be good. As verse 6 puts it, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. This is a line that was repeated throughout chapter 1, but it was God declaring what was good. But now here, it's Adam and Eve taking things in their own hands, and they're deciding this is what we think is good. This is a delight to our eyes. This is to be desired by us. Rather than trusting God's judgment on what was good, Adam and Eve at this point decided, no, we're going to do it ourselves. Because Satan had convinced them, God is not really for you. And at its core, understand this, that is what sin is. It's a rejection of God and his goodness. 
The reason why we sin is we really don't believe God is for us. We don't really believe that his design is best. We don't really believe that his commands will bring blessing. So what do we do? In the moment we sin, we take things into our own hands. We become godlike, declaring what we think is right and what we think is good. And when that happens, the serpent is one. He's a liar and the father of lies. And one of his greatest lies is that God is not good and his commands are not a blessing. The lie is that we would be better off trying to follow our own ways, that we would be better off becoming our own functional gods. And listen, if you don't think Satan is good at this tactic, and if you don't think he's still using that tactic today, you are not paying attention. Because if you turn on TV and watch any television show, or if you go to the movies, or for that matter, you walk into a school, it's obvious that God has been largely rejected. Seemingly everywhere we go, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And it's because they bought in the same lie that Satan was whispering in the garden. God's not really good. He's withholding from you. You would be better off going your own way. And what's heartbreaking about this is that Satan is promising freedom, but what he's delivering is destruction. When he calls into question God's goodness and tempts us to depart from God's ways, he's not bringing joy, although that's what he's promising. Instead, what he's bringing is chaos and ultimately, especially in the end, misery. Misery. So these are the tactics of the enemy. He undermines the reliability of God's word. He undermines the trustworthiness of God. He undermines the goodness of God. And the turning point in this story, and for that matter, one of the turning points in all of human history is when Adam and Eve give in to those tactics. They give in to the serpent's lies, and in doing so, they plunge the world into darkness and despair. Now, having said that, here's my hope this morning. I hope that we can learn from Adam and Eve. In the light of Satan's tactics, I hope that we can develop some countermeasures. In fact, in our last few minutes together this morning, that's what I want to do. I just want to think, what are the countermeasures that we have to fight against Satan's tactics? So let me just suggest one countermeasure for each of his tactics here. So countermeasure number one, know the word. Know the word. You've probably heard this illustration before. I think I may have even given it before, but I think it's worth sharing again. The way that government officials discern counterfeit money is not by becoming overly familiar with what fake money looks like. Rather, the way that they are able to discern what counterfeit money looks like is to know the real thing so well that when they see a fake, they can spot it from a mile away. In the same way, the way that we fight against Satan's tactics of undermining the authority of God's word is not by familiarizing ourselves with false teaching necessarily, but rather it's by being so familiar with what this book teaches and so familiar with, with, the, with what the good news of the gospel is that we can spot a fake from a mile away. In fact, I would argue this is where Eve went astray. I want you to look one more time at what Eve says in verses 2 and 3, and then we're going to go back to Genesis 2, 16 and 17 one more time. All right, so listen to the way that Eve reports what God had said, starting in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. All right, let's compare that now to Genesis 2, 16 and 17. So let's go back again and listen to what God actually said. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, if, if you were to sit down and start writing out, okay, what are the slight differences? You notice there are several slight differences between what Eve says God said and what God actually said. Instead of pointing out God's generosity, for example, and saying that 
we may surely eat of any tree of the garden. She instead just says, we may eat. God names the tree that they should eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve just refers to it as the garden in the midst, or the tree in the midst of the garden. Eve adds a restriction that was not in place in chapter 2. She says that they shall not touch the tree, which is something God did not say. Even the death warning is slightly altered. Rather than saying that they would surely die, Eve just says, lest we die. Now, none of those discrepancies in and of themselves are a huge deal. In fact, we might even wonder, were there times where God communicated more about this tree that just aren't recorded in Genesis 2? That's fair. But when you add all these things up, you realize it seems like Eve didn't quite remember correctly what God had said. It seems that she slightly lost course of God's word, and so because of that, she became susceptible. Now listen, I think the challenge is the same for us as it was for Eve. By and large, the American church is biblically illiterate. And so when someone comes along and slightly alters what the word of God says, we are susceptible to being tempted and led away. Again, Satan is no dummy. As this passage reminds us, he doesn't just flatly contradict God. Instead, he lives in half-truths and in subtle undermines. And so we need to know the word of God well enough to be able to discern when Satan is speaking, maybe through the culture or through other people, with half-truths. As Charles Spurgeon once famously said it, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. That's the challenge, is it not? It's not being able to discern when something is blatantly wrong. We can all see that. It's discerning when something is almost right, but not in line with God's word. Eve was almost right in what she said that God said, but she missed the heart. So listen, if you're a student and you're here this morning, my challenge to you is this. You need to know the word of God, and you need to know it so that when your professor at college or when some person on a viral video challenges the authority of God's word, you're familiar enough with what it actually says to be able to say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. Adults, you need to know the word of God well enough so that when some podcaster or social media person, or for that matter, a pastor tries to convince you of something, you know the word of God enough to say, wait a minute, I know the word of God doesn't say that. Listen, if you want to fight against Satan, then you have to know what the Word of God actually says. It's always amazing to me when people will come to me and they're in some crisis in their life, and I ask the question, well, how much are you in the Word of God? And the answer is almost always, well, never. Well, it's no wonder your relationship with God is broken when you're not living in what His Word says. Right? We want to be serious about fighting against Satan's tactics. That we have to be people who are serious about getting the Word of God into our hearts. That we read the word, we study the word, we meditate on it, we love it. Because we know it's part of God's goodness toward us. By the way, Jesus modeled this perfectly in the desert, did he not? When tempted by Satan, he counteracted Satan's attempt to undermine the reliability of God's word by fighting back with the word. Right? He knew the word so that when Satan tried to tempt him, he was able to say, no, the word of God actually says this. So listen, if we're going to fight against Satan, we must know the word. That's the first countermeasure. Secondly, we need to recall the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. Satan's tactic here is to undermine God's truthfulness. Satan wants us to believe that despite what God says, God won't punish sin. Or despite what God says, following him really won't bring blessing. So the countermeasure is to remember, no, God is faithful to keep his promises. Go through the Old Testament. See how many of God's promises about the Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus. Hint, the answer is all of them. Go through the Old Testament and see how many of God's promises to Israel were, were, were fulfilled. Again, it's all of them. 
Go through your own life and ask this question. Has God ever broken a promise from his word to me? And again, the answer is no. Listen, I understand we live in a world where people make promises and break them. But know this, that is not our God. To quote Joshua 21, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. We need to remind ourselves, God will keep his word. He is faithful. He is faithful. Countermeasure number three, meditate on the goodness of God. Satan undermines by trying to get us to believe God's not really for us. He's not really good. So my question is, well, how do we know that he's for us? How do we know that he's good? I think there are a lot of ways we could answer that question, but undoubtedly, the clearest demonstration of his goodness and of his love for us is the cross. If God sent his son to die for us, then we know he's good and he loves us. To quote Romans 8, if he did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things that we need? If God has sent his son, we can be confident he is good and he is for us. Listen, I know that the world we live in is difficult, and sometimes we may wonder, is God really for us here? If I'm honest, sometimes when I think about my wife's sickness or my son's sickness, I sometimes wonder, is God really for me? But what gives me confidence And what helps me to fight against Satan's whispers is the cross of Jesus Christ. If Jesus took the wrath of God for me, if he bore God's eternal wrath so that I could be set free from my sin, then I know beyond a shadow of a doubt he is good and he is for me. And the challenge for me and the challenge for you is to meditate on the cross more than on our circumstances. Because actually it's the cross of Jesus Christ that in the end is the greatest turning point in all of human history. It's true that Adam and Eve's decision was a massive turning point for the worst. But when Jesus died on the cross and three days later rose from the dead, that was even bigger. Because in that moment, Jesus triumphed over Satan. The serpent was crushed, which is promised in Genesis 3.15. We'll get to that in two weeks. So church, let's be aware of Satan's tactics here. And let's fight back against his schemes. But let's remember also, Jesus has defeated Satan. And the greatest way to fight back against his tactics is ultimately to put all of our hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is victorious over Satan in the desert. Jesus, who is victorious at the cross. Jesus, who is victorious at the empty tomb. So yes, it's true. We fight back against Satan by knowing his word. And we fight back against Satan by recalling the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. And we fight back by meditating on God's goodness. But ultimately, we fight back against Satan by looking to Jesus Christ. So church... Let's look to Jesus, that we may find victory over Satan, but also that we may know the joy of following the one true king. Let's look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is good, and we do trust it. We just want to acknowledge that. We know that Satan is trying to call into question, did God really say this? And we know that he's trying to undermine your character. We know that he's trying to undermine your trustworthiness. But God, we pray that we would cling to what your word teaches. That we would hold fast to it. We'd say, no, we, we know what your word says. We know you're trustworthy. We know you're good. And God, I pray that we would be a church that despite Satan's best attempts, that we would keep pressing on to follow you. Because we know that you are worth it. We know that you defeated Satan. And we know that you are the great king. So God, help us. 
Help us to fight against Satan's tactics. We know from Ephesians that he is still warring against us. And our greatest battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this world. But we pray that we would put on your armor and we would look to Jesus Christ. Please help us to do this, Lord. It's in his name we pray this. Amen. Our benediction today is going to come from the book of 2 Thessalonians. You can stand for the benediction here. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 16 says this, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Indeed, the Lord be with you. Have a good week.